Hey everybody, this is Mark. Welcome back to another episode of This Poor Pastor's Podcast. What you doing here? Don't you have practice? Not anymore, I quit. Oh. Well, since when are you the quitting kind? I want to do something big and something important. I'm not like you. I'm nothing. Just let me be nothing. So where does the power come from to see the race to its end? I believe God made me for a purpose. If you commit yourself to the love of Christ, then that is how you run a straight race. Run in God's name and let the world stand back in wonder. Welcome. Was it as easy as it looked? No, sir. No, no sir, it wasn't. Well, hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, not Monday, when I am recording this episode, and hopefully you are doing well. I sat down Monday to record, and I just ah, I just couldn't. I, I had some things that were rolling around in my head, and so I waited a few days and give you a few more days to listen to the last couple of episodes. And uh, But it's Wednesday, and I'm back, so we'll uh, dive into today's episode. On today's episode... I'm just going to chat with you a little bit. We're not going to go diving too deep into any biblical texts like we have the last couple of weeks, but we are just going to chat about um, ministry, some things I wish we'd stop saying, and why. Why I think that's important. Just going to deliver a little bit of my heart to you and hope that it will be an encouragement. So let's dive into it. If you grew up in church like I grew up in church, then you have grown up hearing um, many statements that are not always thought through very well, but kind of catch on. We love bumper sticker slogans. We like things. It's the reason why the biblical phrase, God won't give you anything you can't handle, uh, sticks with us, even though it is clearly unbiblical. It just it fits our need for something that is, um, I don't know, something that is short, pithy, concise. And sometimes those things are good. Sometimes they are not good. Um, things like saying God is in control uh, is true as far as it goes, but leaves a lot of questions unanswered and that that kind of thing. So, uh, my point is that these things come up and they get ingrained into our vocabulary. They're not super helpful. And in some cases, I think they can just be awkward and completely unhelpful. At worst, they're damaging. And so I have three different statements that uh, have been brought to my attention over the last several months as I've been listening to preaching and just thinking back over uh, my years in the ministry. And they're just, these are three things that I would like to see pastors stop saying. It's my opinion. You help yourself and keep on saying it if you want to. I just wish that we would stop. And I'll give you the reasons why I wish we would. And I'm going to preface this by saying I'm not attacking the men who are saying these things. 
because we've all gotten into the habit of saying some of these things. We hear it somewhere, we read it somewhere, and it just sounds good, and we say it, and then we say it again, and then someone else picks it up, and we don't really always think it through. And I think that when it comes to pastoral ministry, we need to think through the things that we say. It's one of the reasons I'm not a huge fan of extemporaneous preaching. Uh, Not that I think that's necessarily a bad thing, only that I have heard and done a lot of ill-advised speech in extemporaneous speaking. You can claim that the Holy Spirit is leading you in what you're saying, but I would hate to blame a lot of the words that come out of our mouths on the Holy Spirit. The truth is, if we are not prepared, if we don't think through the things that we're going to say, we will, sooner or later, say things that will hurt people or harm the cause of Christ. And so, uh, if you are an extemporaneous speaker, at least be very, very cautious and slow in your speech. Let every man be swift to hear, but slow to speak and slow to wrath. And I don't mean slow to speak as in speaking slowly, but I do mean being diligent so that we think through, preferably before we say something, what it is that we're about to say, and that we specifically ask the Lord to help us uh, to have sound speech that cannot be condemned. Well, there are three statements that I have tried to purge from my vocabulary, and I'm going to give them to you and tell you why I think we should purge them from our vocabulary. The first is just an awkward one for me. It just, it sounds awkward. I think I used this very early on in my ministry, but I'm still seeing guys use it now, and it just... I don't know, it's awkward. And it goes something like this. It is a phrase that talks about us having an intimate relationship with Christ. Um, A pastor recently said, what you should desire more than anything else, or what I desire more than anything else, is to have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I'm fairly certain that what is meant by that statement is something akin to the Apostle Paul saying, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. But the word intimate is in common usage much more of a seductive type of a word or a word that indicates sensuality. And I just cringe when I hear men saying to other men, that we need to develop an intimate relationship with Christ. I just, I, I, can't, I can't wrap my head around the use of that word. One, I don't think we're told anywhere in Scripture that we're supposed to have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, nor that he wants one with us. I think sometimes this is tied to the idea that Christ is the, is the bridegroom and the church is the bride, but remember, the church is the, is the espoused bride of Christ, not the individual person. I am not the bride. I, I make up the bride. But also remember that the church being the bride of Christ in no way signifies an actual, literal marriage relationship with all of the intimacy that is involved with that. God uses physical relationships uh, parent, spouse, 
um, uh, siblings. He uses all of these things to illustrate our relationship with him and how he relates to us. But you know, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and Jesus is going to marry his bride, it's not going to be like it was the night you got married. It's just not. It's it's a symbol. It's, it's words that are intended to illustrate a closeness, a bond, a commitment. But I think out of that grows the idea that we should develop an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And I just want to say, just can we stop saying that? Can we stop saying I think for most men, I think most of the men that are not used to the church environment, they come into our churches for the first time, and they're kind of rough, rugged kind of guys, and they hear some pastor stand up front and say, uh, Christ desires an intimate relationship with you, and it, it doesn't sound right. It just doesn't sound right. I know we want to encourage our people to be close to God, and God does dwell in us, but I wish we'd stop using the word intimate in this relationship. Now, I was speaking with a man the other day, and he said, well, it's a proper use because remember Song of Solomon. And I said, what about Song of Solomon? And he said, well, Song of Solomon is all about Christ and the church. Now, that's, that's a popular view that I personally disagree with, I don't think that the Song of Solomon has anything to do with Christ and the church. I don't think it was prophetically that way. I don't think it was intended that way. I think it's a book about love and marriage and the beauty of intimacy in marriage, but I don't think it has anything to do with Christ and the church. And I'll tell you the reason I don't think it does is because no New Testament author quotes Song of Solomon in that regard. Not a single New Testament author quotes from the Song of Solomon as it relates to the relationship between Christ and the church. The Apostle Paul, who does use marriage as a picture of Christ and the church, does not even quote from the Song of Solomon. So I don't think that we should use the Song of Solomon and its very intimate and expressive language to illustrate how our relationship, my relationship with Jesus Christ should be. So I just think, just think that through. That's all I'm asking. I'm not denigrating wanting people to draw close to God. I am saying that for men, for guys, it's it's awkward to hear a, a guy stand up and say that he wants an intimate relationship with Christ. It's just awkward. It's going to strike other men wrong, men who are not indoctrinated into your church ease language. It's just going to sound weird, and I wish we would stop it. Now, when it comes to ladies, I think ladies, because we emphasize the maleness of Christ and their female and that that relationship, uh, we understand. And the problem with ladies with this idea of intimacy with Christ is that you have at the far end of things, and I recognize it is at the far end, but maybe not so far, you have ladies who are falling in love with Jesus like their husband or like their boyfriend. And this is being propagated, I think, in part because of this idea of developing an intimate relationship with Christ. And make no mistake about it, when you say intimate relationship with Christ, there is a sensual or sexual connotation to that word. You say, well, no, it just means getting to know someone very well. Let me ask you a question. 
Fellas, if your wife said that she was developing a very intimate relationship with a man at work, how would you feel about that? What if she said, don't worry, there's nothing really going on here. It's just I'm getting to know him very well. You would be suspicious of such a relationship because we understand what the word intimate relates and what it connotates. Is that the right word? I don't know. So what should we say instead? I think we should just use the language that the Bible uses. Draw near to God. Draw near unto God, he'll draw near unto you. He promises never to leave us alone. The Holy Spirit of God dwells in us, and God loves us, and we love him. But let's drop this this overly sensual, seductive language when we say, I want an intimate relationship with Christ, or that Christ wants an intimate relationship with you. Since Christ never said he wanted an intimate relationship with you, maybe you shouldn't tell people that he does. Um, anyway, I'll be misunderstood by that, but it's just one of those statements that I think, I, I just think if we're going to reach people in our communities, I, I'm not sure that that's the best uh, use of, of language that we, uh, that we could possibly have. So anyway... Number two, number two, the second thing that I wish we would stop saying, and there are multiple variations of this statement, and please don't turn me off or throw your phone across the room when I say this, but it is this, this statement, this broad brush statement that Jesus is the answer. Sometimes I see this on billboards, Jesus is the answer. I hear pastors say, whatever the question, Jesus is the answer. Oh, I don't want to get in trouble for this. But Jesus, I mean, that is such a broad statement, and it's, a, it's, just a, it's just rhetoric, right? It's meaningless rhetoric. If I go to the home of someone who's hurting and asking questions, and they say to me, whatever, the, whatever your question, Jesus is the answer, I, I don't even know what that means, and neither will they. What if the question is, why did my uncle sexually abuse me when I was a child? That's a question. Is Jesus the answer? And I'm not just trying to be pedantic. I'm not just trying to be difficult. I'm serious. Je- Jesus is not the answer to every question. Now, in Christ, we have a framework for being able to answer many questions in our lives. But I think saying Jesus is the answer, Jesus, 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 Jesus is the answer to every problem. Jesus is, and this is, this is that popular, um, this is that popular conference style preaching, you know, Jesus is the answer. Whatever your problem, Jesus is the answer. Whatever your heartache, Jesus is the answer. Whatever your need, Jesus is the answer. It's just that repetitive nonsense that gets people to say amen, and it's, it's really exciting, and it doesn't last once you, leave, once you leave the place and you face your problems. But it's something that we say that I wish we would stop saying because it doesn't actually solve the problem or give people the answers to the questions they're seeking. Again, in Christ, many of the questions that we face will find an answer or we will find the framework to answer those questions. But just simply telling people, whatever your problem, Jesus is the answer, doesn't actually solve any problems. And I think many times we say this 
to ignore the fact that actually we are supposed to be the answer to many people's problems. I think Jesus even hinted at this when he told the apostles, greater works than these shall ye do because I go unto my Father. Jesus was the light of the world. Then he said, now you are the light of the world. Do you know what? I think the church has abdicated its responsibility to its to the communities and the nations in which we live because we say Jesus is the answer when Jesus said, I left you to be the answer. I left you to fight for justice, to stand up for the oppressed, to help the poor and the needy, to stand on the side of those who are oppressed, to stand against wickedness. I left you to do that. If Je- but if Jesus is the answer, the truth is many times the church has become the problem. So I wish we would stop just simply saying Jesus is the answer, and I wish we would get a little bit more involved with people, but I don't think we really want to. I think it's easier just to tell people, go read your Bible, go pray some more. Jesus is the answer to every problem that you have. But that doesn't mean anything. It's it's empty rhetoric. And it leaves people on their own wondering all these problems that they have And the pastor said today that Jesus is the answer. (laughs) I don't even know what that means. Some questions and some problems, there aren't even any answers. And this thinking is invaded because we've heard this so much. This thinking has invaded and permeated our mindset so that people could say things. I've had people sit in my congregation and say, uh, I have a friend or a family member, their son is dealing with depression, and I just know that if they could get saved, they wouldn't have problems with depression anymore because Jesus is the answer to depression. And he's not. There are many Christians who struggle with clinical depression. And if you don't think that's real, I don't know, I hope it never, I hope it never touches your family. Because there is depression and anxiety and issues with mental and emotional health. Those things do exist. Mock me if you want to, but I'm telling you, they do. And they do not just exist outside of the body of Christ. There are many people in our churches who are struggling with depression and anxiety and difficulties, and we're just telling them Jesus is in the an- is the answer. The truth is, those of us in the conservative or independent Baptist movement are no better than faith healers who are telling people, if you just had faith, Jesus would heal you. Well, we're saying the same thing to them when we're saying Jesus is the answer for your depression. So that means if I'm depressed, I either don't, what, I don't have Jesus? I haven't gotten close enough to Jesus? Maybe I don't have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Or maybe Jesus alone isn't the answer or the solution to every problem that I face. Again, maybe Jesus left us here to enter into those problems and be part of the solution. Maybe some problems don't have an answer this side of eternity. But I wish we would point people to Christ as our hope and our foundation and the one who will bring ultimate healing one day and the one who is with us in our distress. But stop this senseless, um, inane, vapid, non-helpful rhetoric. Whatever your problem, Jesus is the answer. 
I mean, I, I went to college listening to a man say, if you're not going to hell, you don't have any real problems. I can't think of anything more asinine than that. I don't plan on going to hell. I'm trusting Jesus Christ as my Savior, and I have some problems in my life that are about to overwhelm me, if I'm being honest. And I have friends who are facing real difficulties, who have trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior, and that has not solved their problems, nor has it made their problems less massive, less weighty, less traumatic. I wish we'd just stop saying it. I wish we'd think through what it is that we're saying. More than anything, I wish we as the church would recognize that Jesus may not be the answer, but Jesus has left us here to be part of the solution. And that we would get out of our ivory towers and come down out of our our pulpits and enter into people's lives. I mean, what has happened to the church that our sermons are so full of this emptiness? We say, you know, the church isn't a museum for the saints, it's a hospital for sinners. Um, by the, that's another statement I wish we'd stop saying. Neither one of those is, 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 is true. It's not the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is not to be a museum. The purpose of the church is also not to be a hospital for sinners. That's another podcast. But I'm just saying, we, we pat ourselves on the back and console ourselves with empty rhetoric and bumper sticker slogans while real people are really hurting and we don't have an answer for them. I wish we'd stop saying those things. Well, number three. Are you ready? Number three, we're going to bring this. We're kind of making our final approach. We're going to bring this in for a landing. The third statement that I've heard very, very frequently, especially after a recent fairly publicized debate on the Bible uh, between two gentlemen um, about the, the King James Bible, the response from my crowd, my independent Baptist brethren, was swift and sure. One of the things that I have heard over and over, one of the things that I said early on in my ministry, when I was younger than I am, I'm only 41, when I was younger than I am because I was taught and trained this way, my question is why there are men in their 60s and 70s who are still saying this stupid stuff. One of the things that I hear over and over that I wish we would stop telling people is that the Bible is so simple, even a child can understand it. The Bible is so simple, even a child can understand it. I've heard, I don't know how many men in the last year make that statement. Let me make this statement clearly. That is not true. The Bible is not so simple that even a child can understand it. Now, there are some passages, there are some verses that are simple enough even for a child. And I know, I know, you're going to quote to me Paul's letter to Timothy. Well, Paul said that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. Yes, there are passages of Scripture. But by the way, Paul didn't say that Timothy understood the Scriptures from a child, only that he knew them and that they were able to make him wise unto salvation. 
But that but Paul didn't say that Timothy understood all of the holy scriptures. In fact, the Bible itself says that there are people who are unstable or unlearned who stumble and struggle with passages in the Bible. The Bible is not so simple that even a child can understand it. And when we tell people that, we are setting themselves up for failure because they are going to read the Bible saying, I don't understand this, and I'm frustrated because I hear preachers say that the Bible's so simple even a child can understand it, but I'm struggling with these passages. Now, let me be, let me be again, brutally honest here. As a pastor to pastors, the guys I hear saying this the most generally don't stray outside of those passages in their preaching that even a child can understand. So I understand why you say the Bible so simple a child can understand it, because you don't seem to ever go outside of those passages. I never hear you deal with the passages of Scripture that are more challenging and more difficult, because you have it in your head that it's supposed to be simple, so you don't do any studying yourself in some cases, and you you only preach these simple, you know, bottom shelf. I put things down on the bottom shelf where everybody can get it. Not everything in the Bible is on the bottom shelf. The Old Testament, which is part of the scriptures, as you read in the book of Nehemiah and Ezra, you find out that there were people who were instructed in the law whose job it was that as the Bible was being read to the people, others would go around and teach them and help them to understand the meaning. I'll say it again. The Bible is not so simple that even a child can understand it. And don't talk to me about the the flesh Kincaid reading scale. The flesh Kincaid reading scale has nothing to do with un, with intelligibility or understanding. It simply has to do with the number of syllables in a word. But syllables in a word don't make... Having less syllables do not make something more understanding. Ask your five-year-old if he understands what pepperoni pizza is. That's a lot of syllables. Ask him if he understands what spaghetti is. That's a lot of symbols. Then ask him if he understands the words glory, repent, lust. You see, the number of symbols don't necessarily make something easier to understand. Instruction makes things understandable. And the Bible is intended to be a book of instruction. See the Apostle Paul. It takes diligent work and effort on the part of every believer, but especially on the part of those whose job it is to teach and to preach, to labor in the Word. Why would you have to labor in the Word if the Bible is so simple that even a child can understand it? And again, this mentality has led to empty-headed preaching where pastors are preaching passages so far out of their context that it, is, it, would, it would be laughable if it wasn't so sad. And saying things to people that are just wrong because the pastors themselves don't understand it, because they've convinced themselves, because they were told that the Bible is so simple even a child can understand it. So that we can preach passages and what we do is we say we read the Bible until God speaks to us and, or until a verse jumps out at us. Have you ever heard that? You should read the Bible until a verse jumps out at you. I'm convinced that what is really at play there is we're reading our Bibles 
until a phrase jumps out at us that looks familiar and is understandable to us, doesn't matter how it fits into the context, and then we can develop a sermon out of that context. It's not that the, that the Word of God spoke to us, it's just that we, there was a, a, a word, a phrase, or a sentence that makes sense. So I can sit in a conference and hear a man preach uh, uh, out of Paul's letter to Timothy, where he said, um, and that if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the church of God, um, in the house of God, which is the church of God, the pillar of God, the pillar and ground of truth. I'm, I'm not reading it, I'm just speaking off the top of my head. The pillar and grounds of the truth. Then say, and I want to talk to you for the next 30 minutes on five pillars that are important for the Christian life. Again, it has nothing to do with the context, but but the Bible's so simple that everybody can understand it, even a child, and so we don't actually have to work at understanding what Paul was getting at. And this is why you don't hear very many sermons explaining books like Isaiah or Ezekiel or Zephaniah or Haggai or, or Micah or Malachi, because they're harder to understand. You cannot tell me that a little child can read Ezekiel and his throne and his chariot vision and understand it. When most of us don't understand it. I heard a pastor just the other day read out of uh, uh, Ezekiel's uh, description of the heavenly of the of the temple, the rebuilt temple at the end of the book of Ezekiel. He read it and he said, so he said what we learn from this is that God cares about the details. going to read about the temple and see all these details. God cares about the details. And then the man went on to talk about the importance of details, but never talked about the details in Ezekiel. You know why? Because the Bible is not so simple that even a child can understand it. And when we're lazy and we don't do the hard work and we don't teach our people to do the hard work of Bible study and comparison and digging, uh, learning history, learning the history of the Bible so that we understand when different historical characters are referenced, that the Bible wasn't written in a vacuum. Ugh. I wish we'd stop telling people that the Bible is so simple that even a child can understand it, because it's not true. And we're setting people up for frustration and discouragement. Worse, we're setting people up for spiritual abuse from bad teaching. Those are just three things that if I never heard again, it would be too soon. Let's think about our words, guys. Think about what we're saying. Think it through. Let me know what you think about that. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can email me, thispoorpastor at gmail.com, and I would love to hear from you. I'd love to have a conversation with you. I am here to encourage you, and you men that are faithfully faithfully teaching and preaching God's word. I know it doesn't seem as exciting as the popular men make it out to be, but just keep after it. Keep digging, keep plowing, keep working. God accepts your work. It's important. You are valuable to the work of God. And God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. Keep after it. I'm here for you. I'm on your side. And Lord willing, I'll be back next week with another episode of this Poor Pastor's Podcast. Have a good week, everybody.